The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello everyone, I hope you are enjoying your week or I hope you did enjoy your week. Hope you're enjoying your weekend now. This is the Market Pulse podcast. Of course, we are tuned in for episode 17, Cyber Wars. My name is Dion Gribben and thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast. If you do have questions for the show, just shoot them through to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. But let's just jump into it and have a look at how the markets did this week. The ASX 200 was up this week. So after last week where the overall markets or the market in Australia fell backwards, we did gain back some of that ground this week. The ASX 200 finished up 1.6% for the week in total. The S&P 500 in the US was up 1.8% and the NASDAQ was up 3.7%. So a better week than last week, of course, for the markets and especially after some of those really sharp falls that we saw over the last week. For the year so far, just as a bit of a recap, our Australian markets, specifically the ASX 200 index, is now down about 11.2% for the calendar year to date. And we're about 17% down from the actual highs that the market was on right before COVID-19 hit in February. So about 17% down from those highs. So still down for the year, down from those highs. But of course, as discussed in the podcast, we've seen some pretty incredible share price rallies over the past couple of months. And if you're wondering why we've seen, you know, or and you've probably seen it yourself, like some of those really incredible share price jumps. But when I talk about the market, I'm saying that it's actually still mostly down for the year. It's because a lot of these crazy jumps have actually been in very small stocks or more small mid cap kind of ASX stocks, whereas the heavyweights of the market. So I guess some of the blue chips, so those like CPA and other, other big four banks like Westpac and NAB, and then you've got like CSL and stuff. They have not had those kind of jumps, right? They or they they never really do have those kind of jumps, but they are still down very much for the year, especially in, especially among the banks, and and they make up some of the the bigger stocks on our market. Just due to their size, they weigh the overall market down, right? So if CBA, for example, went up in their share price, say two percent um, today, and Afterpay also went up two percent. In terms of dragging the whole market up as a whole, that the impact that CBA is going to have is much, much greater. So whilst, as I just gave an example there of Afterpay, you've seen stocks like that go from a low of $9 and in March and actually closing this week at almost $60 now, you know, the same thing can't be said for some of those bigger stocks on our market. Now, the US actually tells a little bit of a different story. The S&P 500 is only down about 5% for the year so far. And they're down about 8.5% from the peak of the market right before COVID-19 kicked in. So they are, they are a bit closer to their, their high for this year than, than we are here in Australia. And you might have noticed that I said at the top of the show that the NASDAQ this week posted a much better rise. So they were up 3.7% this week. And compared to the broader S&P 500, which represents the top 500 stocks, they were only up around 1.8% this week. So the larger the larger gain, I guess, in the NASDAQ compared to just the broader S&P 500, it's driven again by heavyweights in that index. So when I talked about the heavyweights in Australia, 
being the banks and our mining companies like Rio, BHP, and then stocks like CSL and West Farmers. When you look over at the NASDAQ, those heavyweights are pretty notable household names. So Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, or Alphabet, I should say, Facebook. Now, Microsoft have had a good week. They've had a, they've had a pretty good year, actually. But if you want to pencil in what company has helped drive the NASDAQ the most this year, it certainly has to be Amazon. Their share price is up about 40% year to date. But funnily enough, the they're also up about 40% if you drag it out to 12 months. So instead of just looking at year to date or calendar year to date, if you look at the last 12 months, they're also still up about 40%. So that kind of tells you that a lot of this gain has actually happened recently. They spent the last half of last year relatively flat in terms of share price performance, but their gains has really come this year. And that's because just the way that COVID has hit the economy, they've seen some you know big surges in demand for the kind of services that they provide. So they've definitely emerged as one of the bigger winners of this. Quickly staying on some of the tech-related stocks, I'm going to look at talk about Spotify. Although it's important to note, Spotify actually aren't listed on the Nasdaq. Although you always hear the Nasdaq talked about as the technology kind of index in the US. That doesn't mean they have all the tech-related stocks. So Spotify actually trade on the New York Stock Exchange. So they are part of the S&P 500, I suppose. A couple episodes ago, I spoke about the exclusive licensing deal that Spotify landed with Joe Rogan and just how that had a quite a you know, significant material impact on their share price performance that week. They've continued that price surge in their share price and they've continued to acquire more exclusive content. This week, they announced they signed a deal with Warner Brothers and DC for like a, a narrative podcast that sort of focuses on the DC superhero universe. The one that stood out, of course, was the Wall Street Journal reported that Spotify has also reached an exclusive deal with Kim Kardashian West for a podcast focused on criminal justice issues. If you do want a, a laugh on this, if you go to Comsex, as in the Australian stockbroking platform, the Comsec, they have a they have their own YouTube page and they use that to upload videos each day before the market opens and after it ends and they sort of give updates on, on how the day's been. But if you go to the morning report on the 19th of June, so it was before the market opens on the 19th of June and they have Tom Petrovsky doing it and he mentions the Spotify deal with Kim Kardashian around the four minute, 20 second mark. And he specifically said, for those hungry for more illuminating insight from Kim Kardashian, you'll be able to tune into Spotify soon and gain the benefit of her wisdom. <laughs> so there you go. But yes, investors saw this as a very positive sign and much like Tom, I'm sure, although I personally won't be clamoring for a Kim K podcast myself, I understand why that had a material impact on the share price and Spotify is now trading at about 225 US dollars a share now. So they've continued that surge since I spoke about them a few weeks ago uh, in regards to the Joe Rogan deal. Let's stay in the US for a little bit. And one of the things that drove markets this week was a huge dump in retail sales figures. I'm taking this bit here from Bloomberg, but the US saw a 17.7% advance in retail sales from the prior month, which is their biggest jump in you know month-on-month retail sales change since this particular set of data has started to be recorded, which I think it started in the very early 90s. The issue though with this is they're coming off a very low base, right? So it's, it's not good enough to simply say, 
yay, we're up 17.7%, biggest jump ever, how good? Because it's also come from a low platform. You know, it's kind of like if I sit in an exam at school and I fail the exam because I score 25% and then I go and resit the exam and I get 50%. And then when I see my friends, I said, oh, I resit the exam and my score increased 100%. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true, but you still didn't get a very good score and you've come off a very low base. So in fact, you barely passed. Anyway, I'm trying to work out if that analogy stuck the landing, but you get the drift, right? It's come off a low base and you need to consider that before you just take the stats beyond the initial headline. And that's not, that's not to say this is bad news or anything like this, or I'm not trying to be negative Nancy on it, but it's showing that there is a recovery in that retail area, but I'd, it's still got some way to go to reach the, the normal levels that it, was at, that it was at. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's going to have to keep coming back at a strong pace before people get really excited. The other thing, though, is you have to consider how much of this is fueled by government stimulus. Now, the grant... The grant that the government in the US did to citizens wasn't huge. Um, and most American families received a $1,200 check, the Corona check. And that definitely seems to have made an impact in sort of pumping some cash into the economy and into the businesses. And no doubt that can be reflected in that jump in retail sales. But, you know, $1,200 doesn't get you very far, right? So, and there's, there's no sign that, at least right now, there's no sign that there's any more of that kind of stuff coming. Anyway, you, you add in that retail sales jump as good news alongside the unexpected previous month, which we've talked about where the US had a job increase of 2.5 million, which shocked a lot of pundits across the market and across the industry. But this is still happening against a backdrop of what appears to be an accelerating amount of COVID-19 cases across certain states in the US. And quickly on the note of jobs, I spent a few weeks looking at the new unemployment figures on the podcast. Remember we talk about the weekly new file for unemployment claims, which were crazy numbers. And I don't really know why I stopped looking at it. It's not, not because it was boring, but the, the numbers did start to blur a little bit. But I wanted to return to it a bit, but maybe actually monitor the number of continuing claims. So the figure for continuing claims sits at 20.5 million people. That's as of the 6th of June. I took this figure from the Fed's website and they define continued claims as people who have already filed an initial claim for unemployment and who have experienced a week of unemployment and then filed again for another continued claim of unemployment. So that's maybe a better figure to look at as opposed to just the single week new ones. It's not the clearest picture. It doesn't account for those who just haven't or haven't yet filed for unemployment benefits or it doesn't even account for those that would like to, but they're ineligible. But it's a story of just the huge amount of unemployed persons that are still waiting to find a job in the US. On that note, the Fed did revise its figures regarding overall unemployment in the US. They expect it to be 9.3% by the year end, but that's still about triple what it was before COVID-19 hit. I also read an opinion piece in the New York Times this week by economist Paul Krugman, he had some criticism for those pumping up stocks like Hertz, who we spoke about last week. So the hire car company Hertz, it's a company that's filed for bankruptcy. Specifically, they filed for Chapter 11 protection, which Paul in this article points out is a type of bankruptcy in the US that keeps a company running. And it does that by restructuring the debts that they have. Anyway, he notes in the article that the stock market or stock markets never bear much relationship to the real economy 
which is true. Like it's it's definitely it's not like it's the indicator of how healthy an economy is. It it is it does feed off economic indicators, of course, but it's not like uh, the relationship is always on par. But he goes further to say that these days the stock market doesn't seem to have much to do with reality at all. And there definitely does appear to be, although this might be anecdotal, but it's just a feeling of euphoria and FOMO lately. And I was going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the podcast. But in terms of what the reality is, I'm actually kind of curious to see what reporting season in Australia looks like this year. So that happens sort of just after the financial year ends for a lot of companies and they release their annual reports and you'll kind of get a clearer picture on just how much the shutdown and the pandemic has damaged companies or maybe not damaged companies as much as you thought or maybe not at all. So some companies uh, won't, ne- won't necessarily be in a business where they were impacted too harshly. I want to cover across, this is a very economic-based podcast, this, uh, this particular episode, I should say, not so much about specific shares, but I want to cover off a couple more economic indicators that I came across during the week, remember a couple episodes ago, I sourced data from specific states in the US from Open Table, which monitors restaurant bookings. And so it's a way to look at how those have started to recover. Well, they have the same data in Australia and it's showing that Australians are definitely returning to eating and drinking out. The data shows that bookings like this basically collapsed in March and April, which is obvious because those businesses were closed up they couldn't have people anyway so and the ones that could do food they were doing a takeaway but it's coming back now still down from the baseline of before COVID it's down about 40% but it pretty much fell to 100% during the shutdown period I imagine it's still going to take a little while to return to that baseline as many cafes and restaurants are not at full capacity because they are not allowed to at the moment based on space and social distancing guidelines but yeah even myself when I walk around I'm seeing people starting to return to actually sitting at some of the local cafes and coffee shops and things around that near me actually that's what I'm doing today I'm for the the first time since basically COVID kicked in I'm actually going out to a brewery to have a beer there which feels like ages since I've done anything like that the other thing worth noting in terms of economic data for the week is the unemployment picture in Australia because the ABS had more to say about this during the week and the data in May shows another fall so a fall of 227,700 in employed persons between April and May and if you zoom out to the whole picture since COVID hit the total fall has been about 835,000 and there's a bit more on this so quoting the ABS here quote the ABS estimates that about 2.3 million or one in five employed people in Australia were affected directly by either losing their job across April, May, or had less hours than usual for economic reasons in May. And so that kind of talks also, or at least a bit on the end, talks to the underemployment side of this, which I focused on a little bit a couple episodes ago when we talked in depth about the unemployment rate. And you can see this in hours lost. So that's people who have kept their job, but work less hours so monthly hours on average are down about 10% since March in Australia and between Feb and May underemployment went from 8.4% to 12.9% but further to this if you actually watch the ABC finance report on Thursday evening I think it was Thursday evening so 
Alan Kohler did a pretty good breakdown on this issue, or at least past the actual standard headline of the jobs lost in May. And he quotes the figure I said before, so the the 835,000 people who lost their jobs from March to May. And then he points out that the number of people counted by the ABS as unemployed rose by 221,000. So there's that there's a 624,000 discrepancy there between those who lost their jobs across that period and the number of unemployed people that rose according to the ABS so that it doesn't match. And that's because these people, the 624,000 discrepancy, these people aren't looking for a job. So remember to be counted as unemployed in Australia, you have to be in the labor force and actually actively seeking a job. So that's how they defined it. That's how they do define it under their data rules. So remember, if I lost my job tomorrow and then proceeded to sit on the couch for the next few months just eating chips and watching Netflix, I'm not actually counted as unemployed. Even if sort of deep down I would take a job, if, if there was one available to me right now, I'd have to act- actively be looking for a job. And the job seeker itself, these are temporary rules for the time being given the situation, but you can be unemployed and not looking for work and still get the job seeker right now. So you're financially covered, but you can fall out of the labor force because you're not actually actively looking for work. That's not normal, of course, because the job seeker is just a renamed the dole. And under that, you actually have to be looking for work. So this is kind of like a temporary measure, but it it means that you can get this job seeker and not really be uh, in the market right now looking for a job. And, And that's Maybe because you're discouraged from actually looking for one or you're finding it tough. But it's, it's weird, hey? So it shows that sort of inherent issue with this kind of data, especially during a time like now where there's so many people who were adversely impacted by this and, and impacted in a very different amount of ways. It's very highly probable that you know someone in your personal life that, or maybe even more than one person that was either impacted by a job loss or a reduction in hours. Anyway, the interesting theory that he did that Alan Kohler did at the end of his segment on that ABC Finance report is, so he took the official unemployment rate now in Australia, which is 7.1%. If you add those people who are on the job seeker, the actual unemployment rate goes to 11.3%. So if you add in those job seeker, it goes to 11.3%. And then if you add in the Australians who are on the job keeper, which is about 3.3 million, it goes to 24.8% unemployment. Anyway, it's interesting perspective and regarding that JobKeeper one at the end, you know, you can imagine that some of those people that are on the JobKeeper, they would have lost their job if that was not a policy that, that kicked in to, you know, to help Australian businesses actually pay for their staff. I'm going to finish on something I haven't done in quite a while, which is a little bit of wisdom from Howard Marks. And if you, if you listen to this, you know I love his writing. I love his reflection on the markets and it's definitely one of my favorite voices out there. But he put a memo out this week and it's, titled The Anatomy of a Rally. In the memo, Howard reflects on you know, the falls of the market over the last few months and then the subsequent gains in the market and how all of this actually happened across an incredibly quick time period. He also looked at the, the credence that investors place on central banks to ultimately provide security and assurance to the markets with just a huge influx of liquidity and cash in terms of buying up securities to help shore up this liquidity. It reflects on the fact that interest rates are not only very low and record low, but they're likely to stay low moving forward. And just the relationship between those low interest rates 
and how investors value stocks or even just perceive value in stocks. Also, the narrative among investors of you can't bet or fight against the Fed and how that's helped drive feelings of FOMO and which is its own narrative in the sense that people don't want to miss out on the high-flying stocks or the, the recovery period that always does occur after a period of decline. But I think this line sums it up the best. Quote, in the real world, things generally fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the world of investing, perception often swings from flawless to hopeless. Thus far in 2020, the swing from flawless to hopeless and back has taken place in record time. The challenge is to figure out what was justified and what was aberration. Love that. And yeah, he, I know he's not, he's not like, he doesn't do these memos to predict what's going to happen or tell you what stock to buy. But I don't know, it's, it's kind of like the game plan I bring to doing this kind of podcast. It's, it's also about kind of reflecting on what has happened and trying to make sense of what is happening around us in the market. And people like that, I find their perspective quite refreshing. Well, that's it for this week. It is episode 17. I didn't even get around to talking about everything I sort of noticed during this week. I did see the more news in the whole buy now, pay later sector of the Australian market, which is you know, arguably the biggest FOMO part of our market at the moment. And that was ASX listed Split It, which had a really good week after it announced to the market that it was uh, having a big partnership with MasterCard or signing a partnership with MasterCard and sort of hoping that that's going to accelerate the sort of global adoption of their buy now, pay later, BNPL uh, solution. But thank you for tuning in. Of course, as I like to say at the top of the show, if you do have questions, shoot them through to me at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. Tell your friends about the show, especially if they enjoy this kind of stuff. But have a great weekend. My name is Dion. Cheers. Cheers.